circling back to surface objects. Well, no, I don't really have anything there. Just <laughs> trying to Michael Scott it, but it didn't work. The thing about Michael Scott is he commits, and you keep judging yourself in your Michael Scotting, and I think you should just commit. That's what makes the I whole do. Michael Scott successful, is like, don't turn the gaze inward. Continue skating to where the puck's going to be. Michael Scott, oh my gosh. Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> You are so right. If I'm going to Michael Scott it, I really have to commit. That's wonderful. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steffi Carey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? Hey, it's been great. So I'm officially back at work. The month long vacation or sabbatical is over. That was amazing. Uh, Highly recommend. That's the best life. But I'm also really excited to be back. It's nice to be back in the saddle, get to be back at ThoughtBot with friends, and I'm on a new project. If we could vacation forever, maybe we would, but uh, nice to hear that you're excited to get back to work. So that's good. I would love at some point to have sort of a retrospective on that time and, and think about like, how did it all go? What did you do? What should you have done? You know, those sort of things, but maybe not today, but otherwise you get plenty of snowboarding in. I did. I'm also happy to have that retro today. I'll be honest, it's probably pretty short. (laughs) But yes, uh, I got plenty of snowboarding in. I did manage to bruise my ribs. I took quite a tumble and the right rib cage took all of the impact. So I now know what bruised ribs feel like and that I don't recommend. It's rough. Coughing, sneezing, all of that is very painful. Laughing too. So I'm trying to not laugh, which is difficult. So that that did end my snowboarding a couple days early. But other than that, I'm grateful for all the snowboarding I got in. And also, frankly, grateful I didn't break a wrist because I think this proves, in fact, I didn't try to catch myself with my wrist proves that I'm not a cat and I didn't break a wrist. So I think we're good there and just dealing with bruised ribs instead. That's a that is a rough ending, but uh, glad you're doing reasonably well within the context of that. And yeah, to circle back, I'd love to hear your thoughts. What is the grand summary and retro on your time away from work? Uh, So the grand summary is I did a really good job. I feel like I'm tooting my own horn here. I did a really good job of doing nothing in terms of really embracing that this was downtime that was meant just to sort of reconnect with friends and family and spend time with my husband, Tim, and do fun things and snowboard. It also really helped that I had an activity like snowboarding, something that would keep me outside and focused away from screens. But that part was really nice. I was worried about going into it, one, if I would be able to enjoy that downtime, and then two, coming back to work, would I feel like, oh, gosh, like I really should have done more project work and I didn't. And so far, I'm really glad I took that downtime because I'm feeling this new sense of just like calm and relaxed and appreciation for life. And I also feel more interested in a bunch of topics that I normally just don't have time for. Like I'm very focused on programming and specific day-to-day tasks. And it felt nice to just explore other topics that I normally wouldn't look into because I wouldn't have time for them. That sounds great. I'm glad you were able to fully disconnect. So I assume that means you did no project or like code exploration. There was a little bit that we had talked about early on in this that you were considering maybe doing something like that. But it sounds like you talked yourself out of it successfully and are happy with that. Is that a correct read? Correct. Yeah. To clarify, when I say I did nothing, it's really specific to like I did no programming. So I didn't hop in any open source projects. I didn't build my own apps. Like there was none of those projects that I took on. Having the bike shed, though, I think also really helped. So the fact that I get to talk with you each week and hear what you're doing and also get to share some of the articles that I'm reading, I think that was that little bit of dose of tech that I needed to still keep me connected to that world. So then when I come back a month later, I don't feel like I've just been totally gone for a month. 
So I guess there is a little bit of a hybrid there where I was still staying in touch with some of the things that are going on. It's definitely a double-edged sword, but the idea that being away for a month, you could like totally miss the movements of your industry and be like, ah, I'm so out of touch. I haven't read the blogs for a month. I haven't tried out a new JavaScript framework in the entire month. That's a thing that I share and feels untrue and feels like it's, I'm, again, I'm glad that you were able to uh, get past those voices in your head. So to ask one final question, is there anything you would do differently or you wish you had done differently? I'm going to go with no. I can't think of anything specific that I would change. I mean, I would go back in time and not bruise my ribs. That's what I would do differently. I would take a totally different path and not take that tumble. But otherwise, everything's been really nice. I can't think of anything that I would change. Awesome. Nice work. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a really wonderful time. There is something that popped up on my radar that I found really interesting. It's a group called USDR. Have you heard of that group or that acronym? I have not. So it stands for U.S. Digital Response, and they're a nonpartisan group of volunteers that are supporting state and local governments during the COVID crisis. They spun up, I believe, in early 2020 when they realized governments really needed help ensuring that people that need the most help then have access to the resources because so many resources you really have to do in person and they don't have online support. So they have about like over 5,000 volunteers and it's designers, data engineers, uh, web developers, just a whole group of people that have come together and then they are finding projects that they can join and help out. But they just cropped up on my radar recently because I heard a podcast that was talking about them, but I also read a report by them for a particular application and I was really impressed. It was a very nice thorough report of an application and some of their recommendations on how to improve performance for the site and then also some small tasks that they could achieve that would have a high payoff. So it's just a really cool group. So if anybody is looking to get involved, uh, USDR seems like a pretty cool group. I'm sure there are a bunch out there, but that one just caught my interest. That's really cool. I, I had not heard of that. The related things that come to mind are 18F and USDS, which there are a handful of former ThoughtBotters that have moved on and ended up in sort of civic code spaces. And those two organizations uh, stand out in my mind as ones that are doing good work in sort of the style of development that we're more familiar with and, and ideally could bring to the world of government. But knowing that there's this volunteer option as well is really interesting. So yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, definitely. How are things going in your world? At this point, good. Although I had a, a complicated middle of the week. So I spoke last week about the Rails 6 upgrade that I was working on and how straightforward it was and how everything was going great. I hadn't actually deployed it yet, so that was really counting some things before they had uh, made it into production, as it were. The actual upgrade process, getting the test to pass all of that, like I said, was pretty straightforward. But then I deployed it to staging, and everything was fine. I poked around, checked on some things, everything looked good, and the test had passed and everything. I felt good about it overall. But then I deployed it to production. And for a minute, everything was fine. And then for another minute, everything was fine. And then stuff was less fine. In particular, I got a message in Slack from the VP of engineering saying, hey, I just got a notice from Pingdom. Seems like the site's down. Just checked. It does seem to be down, <laughs> which I like that that's the sequence of. I was told that it was broken. Then I went and checked. And it is broken. I'm not on Pingdom yet. So one of the actions that I'm taking away from this is, yeah, I should probably get added to that. Because initially when I looked at it, everything looks fine right after the deploy. But suddenly it was just throwing errors like crazy and something related to Postgres was broken or something in the database interaction. In particular, database queries were timing out. And then I think at some point the connection pool had been completely used up. I think that was a side effect of the issue that was happening. But overall, it went very badly. And I reverted at that point. 
But yeah, so that that was not great. And it was especially not great because as we started to look around and sort of the wreckage after the failed deployment of Rail 6, we didn't have anything to go on. Like I started scanning the logs, but all I saw were these very generic Postgres unhappy messages. And we looked over in Scout and we saw the related spikes in traffic and things and spikes in queue time and query time, but nothing really stood out as to what was going on. So I'll pause there and see if you have any questions or thoughts. What would you do at this point now? Oh, goodness. That's tough. When you're like digging through all the logs, the fact that it was on staging and fine, you're digging through the logs and you're not seeing anything obvious. Is there anything that's being captured by like a service like New Relic? Perhaps those are the logs you're referring to that you were looking through those? Yeah, the combination that we have, I think it's log entries that we're using for logging. And then Scout APM is the performance monitoring in that space. And then we also have Honey Badger. So those are the three services. But sort of across them, nothing stood out. There was no obvious smoking gun. There was a lot of references to errors and things, but they were very generic, low-level Postgres errors. They weren't speaking to any particular endpoint or query or anything like that. The app just seemed to fall over on itself, or at least that was the way things looked initially. I'm trying to think of where else I would look. My initial instinct would be to go back to staging to see if I can break something and poke around there. And then past that point, checking like the database URLs and making sure that those are accessible. I'm intrigued. What did you do? Yeah, spoiler, I guess I I framed this as if there is a correct answer to the question. And that's a thing that I know. I went to staging, poked around, didn't get any more information there. But based on the nature of the failures, the fact that they didn't happen immediately, it didn't seem like it was truly a code level change or something like fundamentally broken. So we didn't really know what we were working with. And we decided to just deploy it again the next day after I tried to search around and see if there was anything else I could find. But my plan was to stay much closer to it this time. And really just watch because the, the revert worked fine. So we were like, yeah, we'll test it in production. And we have, there's an, a natural lull to the traffic of this application in the afternoons. So we collectively decided that was probably the best thing. And I was ready with that revert button for the second deploy. So the following day, uh, we deployed again. And this time, what I ended up doing was watching and I could see similar failure modes were starting to creep up. But in particular, I used the Heroku PG colon PS command which is part of the Heroku CLI, and it allows you to see the process list running in Heroku or in Heroku's Postgres instance. And in that process list, I saw hundreds of references to roughly the same query, uh, which was select the numeral one as O-N-E from users where lower user's email equals lower dollar one limit dollar two which is a weird looking query, especially the one as one thing, but that is just Rails exists. That's how Rails converts a like exists query to say like, is there any record that matches the, the rest of this query? And then just give me back the numeral one to send the minimal bytes over the wire. But as far as I could tell, this was a check to see if the user exists by email. So this was a uniqueness by email sort of thing. But for some reason, this broke everything. I had two thoughts. One, I really like that practical approach you took of, can we test this on production? Is there a lull in traffic? Because I immediately thought, well, we can't go back to production. I really like how you're like, well, maybe we can. And that's where you went to test it. And then two, I just wanted to take an early guess. So does this have something to do with the fact that you now have a read database, the follower, where that's where all the reads are going? This does not have anything to do with that. So to clarify, I have not made any of those changes. This was just an attempt to upgrade from Rails 5.2.4 or whatever it was to Rails 6. But we weren't yet taking advantage of the fancier features. One thing, actually, just to talk about it, that was very purposeful. I was actually going specifically to Rails 6 and not to Rails 6.1. So I was making a minimal step. I'm happy I did that because I think that helps constrain the surface area of how many different weird things can go wrong. The thing that I didn't do that I think would have been useful 
there was a migration that comes along. It's something related to how active storage, the blobs in the database get stored or the records, something like that. But there was a migration that is part of the Rails 6 upgrade. And I feel like I probably could have teased that out and deployed the migration on its own because inherently a code change, I always feel fine rolling back or I feel better rolling that back. But anytime there's data migrations and a code change, now I've got two different things. And if I roll back the code, I'm not rolling back the database. And so that out of sync sort of thing, if I, if I could decouple that and actually get the database change live, see that that's stable and then do the code only change, I think for higher risk deployments like this, that is the sort of thing that I should do. And I, I didn't do in this case because I had lulled myself into a false sense of security. So looking at this again, I have this query, it's standing out. It looks as though it's a uniqueness validation. And so I go check. Our model does have a uniqueness validation, but we've always had that. So that shouldn't have changed. Um, but I started to poke at it. And in particular, what I did was I looked at the query log. I was running, so I've reverted everything now and we're back in the safety of 524 is on production. But now locally, I'm poking at the query log, seeing what happens when I create a user, in particular, looking for that user exists by email validation check, the uniqueness check. And the interesting thing that I saw that was different was on Rails 6, it was using that all caps lower function in Postgres to lower the email on both sides of the comparison. Whereas in 5.2.4, whichever version it was, we were not seeing that. So it did not use the lower. And digging a little bit deeper, we have an index on the users by email because we often look up users by email and there are many, many users, but it does not include the lower. So that index was not being used by the query when the lower function was introduced. As a result, this query that used to be nicely indexed and very fast suddenly just exploded in terms of time to actually run. Thus, they started building up on each other, they started timing out, and then there was sort of a cascading failure mode where each one of those runaway queries, they kept retrying and different things because the users were retrying and all of that. But any new user trying to sign up for the app was now causing it to essentially DDoS itself. Oh, that's fascinating. Because yeah, then I imagine a lot of the smoke testing that took place on staging wasn't necessarily creating new accounts. You're essentially signing into existing accounts, so you wouldn't have seen some of those queries back up. I'm intrigued. So the 5.2 doesn't use the lower that you mentioned, but 6 does. So is that a change that Rails is applying? Because you didn't change anything in Postgres at this point. That is a good question. Uh, this is not a Rails change, actually. This was an unrelated change that came along for the ride. Uh, so when we bumped Rails, we also needed to bump a bunch of other gems. So as we say, Rails Twiddlewaka 6, so the what's the tilde character greater than the Twiddlewaka? That's, I believe, the, the formal name of the tilde followed by I'm gonna uh, greater than. Say it again. Twiddlewaka. I'm not familiar with that. Twiddlewaka. Yep, yep. That's, um, <laughs> I think it's formally called the pessimistic version operator. Yeah. Maybe, okay. but obviously we're calling it Twiddlewaka. So Twiddlewaka 6, and then we say bundle update rails. That's where Bundler is going to start complaining about, oh, we have incompatibilities. You have this other gem that requires a lower version of Rails. You've got to upgrade that as well. And so I went through that dance and I bumped a bunch of gems that either had more looser version constraints or didn't have version constraints at all. And as a result, we ended up on newer versions of a handful of gems. So Rails 6 was actually fine in this case. It was Clearance, a gem by the one and only ThoughtBot company that actually led me astray here. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. I hear they're pretty great. So that's disappointing. <laughs> they are. This has all already been resolved, but it 
the fix for it has not been released. So this was a change that was made that seemed like one of those innocuous changes. And looking at it, the code is slightly more correct in this current version, or at least it covers some potential edge cases. They're actually not edge cases that we have to deal with because we're also using a normalization thing from clearance when we create users that will downcase the user before we save them. And so therefore our index is only dealing with the downcase version of the user's email address. We're always comparing across that, everything's fine. But this is a nice little sort of correctness thing, but it goes to show that software needs to be more than just correct. And so although this seems like such an innocuous little change, it caused one of our largest tables and one of the regular queries that hits that table to no longer be able to use an index. And the transition from using an index, this is a nice speedy query, to not using an index, this query will make you very sad, uh, was experienced. Yeah, that's tough because then there's no way that you would have caught that until you had that volume to then reproduce the issue. I'm curious, was there any discussion amongst the team as to how else that could have been caught before going to production? We haven't actually had a chance to do a retrospective around this. I think it's worth having the conversation and deciding, is there anything process-wise or code checks-wise that we could do here? Initially, my sense is I don't know that there's much that we could do. I would love to see this sort of comes back to my increasing interest in observability and instrumentation and whatnot. There were some obvious signs the minute this deploy got out that stuff was weird, but it wasn't until it sort of elevated to a higher level and the errors were sort of stacking on each other that we got an actual notification. And particularly with this type of deployment, there were definitely things that I could have seen given higher fidelity instrumentation of the system. So that's a really interesting thing to me, but I think that's a a bigger engineering effort. As you ask the question, there's also Herman's absolutely fantastic blog post, Say No to More Process. It sort of suggests the idea that like things are going to go wrong, but the type of thing that went wrong here won't be the same thing that's going to happen down the road. So if you try and add process to fix this one thing, will that actually serve you or is now you're just process getting more heavyweight? So I think the instrumentation thing continues to be on my mind for those reasons. But in this case, I'm not sure what else we're going to come to. I do hope that we have the conversation because I think there's stuff to at least have a conversation around, but I'm not sure what we'll come away with. Yeah, I agree. At this point, the conversation feels helpful just to educate others so they know what happened and then to be on the lookout for when applying further upgrades in this manner. But I'm, I'm with you. I don't know that there's anything specific that could have caught this other than perhaps monitoring reporting of slow queries as the deploy was going out and then keeping an eye on it. But I'm, I'm with you. It doesn't feel like a process improvement, but more of a education and then also keeping an eye on analytics. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good summary. So we'll see what actually comes of it, any other conversations. But at this point, Rails 6 is deployed and live. And that was a fun little adventure that I got to go on. I was really happy with finding it because it was one of those things that, again, really would only manifest for us on production. It was really difficult to see anything locally or even in staging. And if I had failed the second time and left in sort of the same, just there's the debris and smoke and I have no idea what happened, then I don't even know what we would have done at that point. So I'm very glad that I happened to capture the Postgres logs and see that one query and it like kind of stood out just enough and gave me something to work from, but could have gone the other way. I could have just been saying I failed three times to deploy Rails 6 to production and I'm sad about it. Uh, so I'm glad that that's not what I'm saying now. I mean, if you've upgraded to the next major Rails version and your app hasn't gone down at some point, did you really upgrade? Have you really lived? <laughs> I'm pretty sure all the product managers out there are like, no, you don't need to do that. <laughs> don't need to take production down. It's not a required rite of passage. But if we're being honest, we've all done it. 
And if you haven't, you haven't really lived, or so says Steph. I like it. It's good framing. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat, so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. At only $39 a month, Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by visiting and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. To learn more, visit scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. We have a listener question that we can dig into now that we're moving on from the, the sadness of the failed deploys and the, the journey to get out of that. This question comes to us from Jorge Garcia, and it came in through the uh, new listener question form that we have. It's very fancy. It's a Google form. So uh, yeah, we'll include a link to that in the show notes, and uh, it makes it even easier. You can also send an email to host at bikeshed.fm or send a tweet or any number of things. But now there's a form, which is you know like a structured way to add data. But reading the question, hey, Bike Shed, hope you all are doing great. I'm a fan from Mexico. I have a question. What's your take about Rails service objects? I've been struggling over the past few months with business logic that should be part of the Rails model, but they're scattered all over service objects as this is a big application and it's hard to find what to work with. Right now I'm working on identifying business logic related to the model and moving it away from service objects and back into the core models using Rails concerns to not actually bloat our big Rails models. This is kind of similar to the approach that DHH described on, quote, writing software well videos about how Basecamp have big models, but they use concerns to organize the logic. So that's the question, Steph. What do you think? I really like this question because it has prompted me to reflect on my own use of service objects. I'm in the camp of service objects have served me well, so I've enjoyed using them. I was reading up on it because I wanted to understand some of the more negative, or maybe negative is a, a strong word, but understanding some more perspectives or pain points around the reason that folks don't like service objects. But just to back up for a moment and give a little background in case people are less familiar with service objects, they're really just a plain old Ruby object, and they wrap what is more of a procedure or a specific action. So they typically expose just one public method. You call that public method, and it probably has some side effects, and it runs that task, but that's really the the extent of your interaction with that object. So it falls less into that idea of object-oriented design where we have this object that takes some data, but then also has other methods on it. But it's really just more procedure is the way that I've seen them and typically the way I've used them as well. But I find that really useful for encapsulation. But I wanted to read up more on some of the reasons that people do have pain points with service objects. One of them that was just pointed out by Jorge is that it increases in direction and makes it difficult to understand the app's features. So if you have a lot of service objects that do one discrete action, but then it's hard to understand, well, what does my app do? What are my features? What are like the domain objects? Like, what should I really understand about my application? I can see where that can cause some pain points because then you have so many small objects, but you don't really understand how they're working together. And then that app services directory can really feel like a junk drawer where everything is getting dumped into there. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the models that are in app services really could just be moved to app models. They're not going to be backed by active record, but they can be more of that plain old Ruby object style. 
I have some other thoughts, but I'm going to pause there because I'm curious, what's your experience with service objects? Do you use them heavily? Do you tend to find that they are overburdened with behavior? Uh, Yeah, I think I'm generally a fan, although the phrase service objects is one that historically I've seen people resist just that idea. Like it feels like a junk drawer and it feels like indirection. There's some other things. So the indirection is one question that I want to poke at a little bit. But in terms of the junk drawer thing, uh, I've actually moved away from using app services as a directory. And instead, there are two particular directories that I really like, which are app queries which are for query objects. And query objects, again, they're plain old Ruby objects, but typically they have the interface where they take in a relation, so some sort of base query, but unexecuted, so an active record relation, and they return a relation. So this thing like allows us to find active users or something like that. And so now we have a query object, which is active subscribers. And it can take in a set of users, so maybe you want to filter that down, and then it returns back the active subscription, something like that. I find those incredibly useful because I find it's very easy to have a model contain all of this logic around all of the different types of queries. And inherently, most Rails apps are going to have a lot of query logic. So having a structured way to do that, having them in separate objects, having the ability to test them and to mock and stub them, all of that I really enjoy. The other type that I've been enjoying is app commands. So that is a new one, but these are command objects. So command and query uh, or command query separation as an idea is sort of the, the presenting idea here. Some of this goes back to the work that I talked about a number of episodes back when I was first playing around with dry Ruby and dry monad. That has some additional fun stuff that I really enjoyed in terms of what does a command object return. But setting that aside, I think the idea of having the more procedural code as you outlined it captured in an object. I really like that. I found that to be very, very valuable. And I don't want that to be in models. Additionally, I really don't want to use callbacks too much. There are probably a rare handful of cases where I think they're useful. But in general, I've been bitten by callbacks more than they have saved me. And I prefer having canonical command objects like create user. That is a command object that I'm happy to have in the system. And if we're creating a user via the API or via web form or anything, we make sure all user creation flows through that form. And then it can do all the stuff it needs to. But the actual act of creating a user in the console doesn't necessarily send 12 emails, that sort of thing. So those are some initial ideas. And and again, broadly, I'm a fan, but those are some specific ways in which I've used it. But I'm interested to hear a bit more of what you're thinking. I have to take a small detour and comment on query objects because query objects are my favorite objects. I mean, I guess plain old Ruby objects are perhaps my favorite, but I really love query objects. And there's a really great use case that highlighted them because not only are they great at helping remove some of the clutter from a model, but they can also be really great for testing purposes, which is often what's driving my decision whenever I'm creating objects. If I am creating a query object, if I'm creating a service object, whatever we want to call it, uh, what's always typically driving that is I want this to be easy to test. And the query object example that I ran into just recently is we were testing that a mailer is getting sent to the right group of people. And in testing this job, we want to make sure that a certain group of people are being excluded from receiving this mailer. And so the test was essentially saying that when we run this job and the mailer gets sent, we expect it to not get sent because we are only building up the data for someone who should not receive this mailer. And it ran into one of those, like, the test is passing, but we didn't have confidence that it's really passing for the right reasons. So it was a great opportunity to extract that understanding of individuals who shouldn't receive this mailer for a specific reason, and then testing that, because then you can make a more accurate comparison of saying, I expect that when I run this query, that I should not get back this particular user. So side shout out to query objects. They are my favorite. (laughs) 
And then circling back to the service objects, I haven't seen the app commands pattern. I'm intrigued by that. I've also seen some other ideas that I'm intrigued by as folks are exploring alternatives to service objects, because I feel like service objects still serve a valuable place in the world. But because they came out, they were probably that classic, very hyped up, people very excited about them, and they've just become a, a junk drawer for everything that they house. But some of the alternatives that I've seen are one, adding the logic to the model, which I think helps address like Jorge's concern where it's very hard to see what the application does. However, I tend to prefer to keep my active record backed models focused on data persistence and querying. So I tend to lean away from adding more stuff to the model because I feel like that just attracts more domain logic and behavior or business logic as well. Although I could understand that approach of like you do the small thing and then over time you iterate and you extract it out to another class because you're avoiding the wrong abstraction. Maybe there's a, a deeper conversation to have there as well. Uh, the other thing that I've seen them intrigued by is using a module to represent domain concepts. And this is something that I was having a conversation with Erman about because I was asking around in ThoughtBot like, hey, what do you all think about service objects? And Armand provided a specific example that I really liked. So we have the idea of like a service object. It could be something like a post creator or it's a post updater. So it has that very procedural functionality where it does one action and it does it well. But then you don't really understand in what context, like why would I want to create a post or why would I want to update a post? So then Armand's idea is that instead you have more of a domain concept module that it could be a timeline. So perhaps these posts belong to this timeline module. And then within the module, you have your functions, create post, update post. So then you have more of a representation of what your app does and where the behavior lives. And so it's a, it's a bit closer together. So then you have that more holistic picture. I'm intrigued by the idea. I do like modules, but I have been burned more by overburdened modules that then get included into other classes and extend behavior. So that's where I'm a bit wary of modules. But I do like that idea of elevating, like we have this procedural idea, but could we elevate it to something larger, like a domain object or something that's more representative of what the app does, and then aggregate some of that functionality together? Yeah, I think to continue on with that, part of the question was around using Rails concerns to push logic back into the model, but then also not clutter the model file. And in my experience, if we have a large model file, and then we're saying, oh, we'll just take some stuff out and put it in a concern, and then we'll include that concern back in. That's sort of just like some IRS shuffling the paperwork uh, shell company sort of thing, but it's still a big model at the end of the day. Ideally, in my mind, I actually reach for concerns very rarely in the model domain, but I may use it if there is some similar idea that's repeated across a few different models. And to be clear, this as much as I can make this distinction, would be a duplication of a concept or a fundamental idea within our domain, not just duplication of code. Because as we've talked about on a bunch of episodes, drying things up too early or having the wrong abstraction can be more painful than having the duplication. So I would probably stick with duplication in a lot of cases. But if we really have this like fundamental concept of, say, taggable, everything in the app is taggable, and there's a bunch of behaviors and some data associated with that, maybe I would introduce a taggable concern or a taggings concern or something like that, and then it gets mixed into a handful of models. But if we're just saying the user model is 3,000 lines long, so we're going to take lines 1,000 through 2,000 and put them in a concern, and we're going to include that concern back in, that's really just sort of shuffling things around. And in my experience, that's actually some implicit indirection that now when I look at the model file, I have to look at it, but then I also have to say, oh, wait, I have to check four other files to think about what's the behavior of this. Uh, and in terms of the general indirection, like having things broken out into a lot of small classes, if that indirection is explicit, I actually tend to be fine with it. So if I know that a request comes in and then it goes to a controller and that controller calls out to some 
query object, or let's say some command object that I've introduced, but then that command object calls out to a query object, which also calls out to two more. And then under the hood, it does two more things. If those indirections are explicit, if I'm referencing a class name and if I'm directly, like if I can trace that very easily, I'm fine with it. The times where I've personally struggled and been bitten are, say, active record callbacks that are running at times that I wouldn't expect them to. And now there is indirection of like what's actually happening when this request comes in. I don't know. But for some reason, this database field keeps changing for reasons I can't understand. That sort of stuff, especially in larger applications, I find really difficult to manage. So I'm much more fine with having the command object or the query object or whatever service object if I'm more explicitly using them. And so that's definitely my lean. During my first couple of days back in the saddle, I have already run into an unwanted encounter with a callback, which is most encounters with a callback. But this one explicitly was setting the value for another model. So when we are saving this, it has a relationship. And then it was setting an attribute on the model that it has a relationship with. So that was an adventure and fun to discover. I'm with you in terms of the indirection. That is not something that I have felt, but I have heard others express it. So I'm always very interested when folks say they're feeling that pain of indirection. And I don't know if it comes down to naming and then also the responsibilities of those objects. Because when I'm looking at a class, I'm okay with not knowing what all the collaborators are doing. As long as from the name of that collaborator, I can deduce what's happening. Same from the test. Like I don't necessarily want to have to care what is happening in all the collaborators. I just want to have a general picture. And then if I do care, then I can take that deep dive and continue down the rabbit hole. But I have not run into that issue where I feel like if objects are adhering to that single responsibility or are well named around a concept in the app, and maybe that's one of the concerns with service objects is that they end up being these objects that end with like ER versus like really trying to represent something happening in the app. So we have like a user updater or a user creator. And maybe if that was more representative of when we're creating or updating a user, then that may help folks. But I'd be intrigued to see more examples where folks say, this is causing me pain and this is why I take a look. I'd love to see those examples. I've heard plenty of people talk about the it shouldn't end in ER or OR, I guess, either way, like a user creator or something like that. I don't necessarily share that. I'm fine with them, it turns out. <laughs> That's the thing that it does. It does what it says on the tin. I'm a fan of that. I've not felt pain around it. So I am also intrigued. I'd love if folks out there really hate that and want to tell me why, because I, I would love to know. But in terms of sort of inverting the idea and not being about what it does, but being about when it does it, this is one of the things that I push on really hard is designing for greppability. I want to be able to search for most things in the app. And by looking up the name of a, a class, I hopefully will be able to tell where it's used. As a result of that, I am increasingly as time goes on opposed to things like dynamic dispatch method lookup sort of stuff where i take a string and i camelize it and i constantize it and then i call a method on that string that got turned into something else because i wanted to avoid some duplication those sort of adventures way more bite me than anything else they make it so much harder to find out where things are i've played with dependency injection in the past and again i've not really enjoyed that. That's a case where like, you don't really know the name of the thing you're working with. You're working with something more indirect. And I found that to be somewhat painful. I also don't use delegate in Rails models anymore. Delegate foo bar baz to user. 
prefix true because it means that I can't grep for a bunch of uh, method names. Already we have Rails creating a method, a bunch of methods for every database column. So I'm already fighting an uphill battle here. I want to cling to any grep ability that I can within my code base. I want to be able to search for anything and really understand where it's used, how it's used, all of that. And as a result, I'm less prone to the fancy things these days. Yeah, I really appreciate that because that is something that then has been a time sink for me is in trying to hunt down where stuff is being defined for the exact reason that you just expressed. One thing that did come to mind uh, reconsidering Jorge's question is around to the idea that there's business logic that should be part of the Rails model, but they're scattered all over service objects. I am starting to recall in the past where I have worked with classes where there's one action, let's say we have something that is updating a user, and that process of updating a user was scattered across two or three different classes, that I can start to understand where that pain comes from. Because you feel like you haven't really completed that action, that process, because then you have to have all these other objects working together to complete that. So maybe if one class, I'm going to make up a totally fake example, but if you have one class that is updating the email, but for some reason, then you're kicking it over to another class to then update the user's phone number or something like that, I could see where that would feel disorienting and harder to test at that level. So maybe that's an example of where stuff has been spread out apart too much to the point that it's hard to follow. And it would be nice to just bring that back into one class to handle all of that. Actually, hearkening back to the very first episode of this here podcast, there's Sandy and Derek's rules in which they discussed Sandy Matz's rules for clean code. And one of those is that a file should be no more than 100 lines. And I feel like that type of heuristic thing like i think it's a great general guideline and i think it's a good sort of pressure to like if this file is more than 100 lines has it earned it or is there say like a sub query that we could pull out and that's you know we love query objects as we've said in this episode but what you're describing of the user creator like oh let's actually have an email populator and that's a separate class i can see that in direction being more frustrating it's like it's actually okay if the user creator is 300 lines long because it turns out creating a user is very complicated in our app and this one class now encapsulates that really well if you look at the test file associated with that you can see all of the different considerations that go into that and the reasons why it might be as long as it is so i would be fine with breaking that rule for that type of situation and leaning towards let's actually bring this stuff together so that we can tell a cohesive story that's as always that's what we want to do with our code and convince the computers to do what we want but more so tell future us a story tell a cohesive testable story i'm for it (laughs) with that small addition (laughs) i think we just named the episode Yeah, all of that resonates deeply with me. And I really like that phrasing of it's not necessarily a rule to follow, but it's more of a pressure, a consideration of when you get there of reevaluating that you're there and just confirming with yourself like, yep, this is where I want to be. This is fine. Or no, perhaps there's a better way. But with that, hopefully we provided some useful thoughts around service objects. I know I will be more considerate now when I'm making service objects to reflect on all of these ideas and looking for more domain level naming to use. Perhaps like it's either a service object or perhaps it could be more of a domain object and then making it discoverable to the rest of the team. So this was a really great question. I hope we provided some useful thoughts around it. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. 
This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.